We have two more uh, Sundays in our Lenten season. And for those who have been with us uh, throughout, whether online or in person, uh, you know that we are in a sermon series curated by our scholar-in-residence, Dr. Chris Holmes, uh, called An Acceptable Time. And we've been looking at various scripture texts where uh, our offerings to God, our uh, disciplines in terms of our faith practices that are offered to God, we've been reflecting on this idea of what God favors or what God uh, accepts. So we've talked about an acceptable sacrifice. We've talked about an acceptable fast. We've talked about uh, acceptable piety. And today we are going to reflect on acceptable worship. What is acceptable worship? What kind of worship does God favor? For that, we're going to turn to Hebrews 12, the last two verses of that chapter and the first six of chapter 13. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For indeed, our God is a consuming fire. Let mutual affection continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them. Those who are being tortured as though you yourselves were being tortured. Let marriage be held in honor by all. And let the marriage bed be kept undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Keep your lives free from the love of money. And be content with what you have. For Jesus himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can anyone do to me? Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open this word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who began our time of worship this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. About two years ago, Forbes magazine published an article by Jody Cook under the title, Is Success Making You Lazy? Is Success Making You Lazy? And at the heart of this piece was a warning to successful companies who were on the precipice of what she described as their second generation. Right, so they've been around for a generation, about 20 years. Uh, they've had great success, and now they're on the precipice of starting their next 20 years. They are in their second generation. In the first generation, she says that successful ventures are often built by a founder or, or founders uh, are built by their first hires, their first employees who are dedicated to the mission of the business, they all work very hard. They all work long hours to develop their product, to curate a brand name, to cultivate a particular work environment and culture, to, to grow customers, to grow profit margins, and to develop ultimately a business model that can be solvent and self-sustaining into the future. The thinking is, and sometimes it's a myth, but the thinking is, is that when a company gets all this right, success is inevitable. You just kind of press play and it just 
plays and it just goes. Things just sort of run themselves. No one needs to work as hard or sell as hard or innovate as often as when they did when they were first getting things off the ground. Cook argues that that was the perspective of blockbuster video. Remember them? In 1999, 24 years ago, which is not that long ago, it seems like a lifetime ago, but 24 years ago, 1999, this movie and video game rental giant had a valuation of $4.8 billion. Billion with a B. Now, about that time, an intern at the company, at Blockbuster, uh, got a, a hearing with some lower-level executives in the company to pitch them an idea that they heard another company was doing. The concept was that you could rent movies and video games, not at the store, but rent them through the mail, and eventually through this thing called the Internet, and they would be delivered to your house. Well, the executives laughed that idea out of the room. That's not who we are. That's not our business model. That's not what we do. In 2000, that company that this intern had heard about was now three years old. It's a company that you may have heard about. It's called Netflix. Netflix actually approached Blockbuster. Three years into their existence, they approached them with a proposal to sell their company to Blockbuster for $50 million. The CEO of Blockbuster rejected that offer because Netflix was too small and too niche. Blockbuster would stay the course. They would continue to do what they did for the first generation of their company's life. But they also started to coast. They also started to get lazy. They rested on their past success, believing incorrectly that what they had already done yesterday was enough for tomorrow. Don't fall into that trap. Believing what you had already done yesterday is enough for tomorrow. Of course, it wasn't. Blockbuster went from 9,000 stores in 2004 to only one store today, and that store is independently owned in Bend, Oregon, because Blockbuster went bust. It went bankrupt. It doesn't exist anymore. Conversely, Netflix has over 200 million subscribers worldwide with a market cap of $100 billion. Again, billion with a B. Ms. Cook summarized the point of her whole piece with this word of encouragement for companies who are entering into their second generation, entering into their next 20 years. Companies who may be tempted to become complacent, to get a little lazy, to just go through the motions because those motions had got them where they are today. And this is what she said. Imagine how much further your brand might go if you put in just as much effort as you did at the start. If you conditioned yourself and your team to operate in startup mode, so you seized every opportunity for growth and you worked on all of your weaknesses and shortcomings, however insignificant they may seem. 
I begin this way because the intended recipients of the letter to the Hebrews, one of 27 books in the New Testament, uh, that community was a second-generation Jewish Christian church. It was a second-generation Christian or Jewish Christian church. The community was at least 20 years old, and there was some amount of time that had passed between Christ's ministry, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, and his ascension. It was several years since Pentecost Sunday and the birth of the church. At least 20 years on. And it seems that this community, according to what we can read between the lines in this particular book, it seems that this community of Jesus' followers were becoming complacent in their spiritual lives and in their witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Perhaps like the blockbuster video executives, they were just doing what they had always done before, but doing it half-heartedly, abandoning passion and joy, all of those things that made them a once vibrant community after Pentecost. It seems that this community was just sort of going through the motions their growth in Christ had become stale and stunted. And one of the many issues addressed by the writer of Hebrews was the way that some in the community were sporadic in their worship attendance. And as Hebrews 10.25 intimates, that some had actually stopped participating in worship altogether. One might extrapolate from the overall themes of this letter, of this book, that those who were continuing to gather for worship we're just going through the motions. There's this sense that the community and its worship life was rote and stale and obligatory. And we can safely assume, I think, that this monotonous, humdrum, sour type of worship was not pleasing to God. And it was not edifying to the church. It was not building the church up, which is why the writer is writing in the first place. In other words, what the writer is saying is that this worship was not acceptable to God. It's not a worship that God favors. So in our text this morning, the writer uh, to this complacent community calls the people to move away from their rote and, and sour worship and embrace and demonstrate a revitalized sense of the kind of worship that God favors, the kind of worship that is acceptable to God. And the writer frames it like this, from the end of chapter 12 to the beginning of chapter 13. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and with awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And then into chapter 13, let mutual affection continue. Now, I know that seems like it lacks continuity, but I hope later in the sermon I'm going to build a bridge to the end of 12 and the beginning of 13. But before I get there, there are two things I think that are really important for me to share theologically about worship. First, we must remember uh, that acceptable worship transcends the forms or styles that our worship takes. Okay, acceptable forms of worship, theologically and biblically speaking, transcend the forms and the styles that our liturgy and our worship takes. In other words, acceptable worship is not about screens versus hymnals. Acceptable worship is not about Bach versus Chris Tomlin. 
acceptable worship. Nobody here knows who Chris Tomlin is. I know, I know, that's funny. <laughs> My point exactly, right. Um, clapping versus no clapping, right? Or a 60-minute service, which we're prone to like, to a three-hour service. It's not about a 10-minute sermon or a 40-minute sermon. It's not about gospel versus classic versus contemporary versus jazz versus contemplative versus whatever. That's not what it's about. Acceptable worship is not about the plural and diverse forms that liturgy takes. And while we may have our preferences, and I know we have our preferences, right, Jens? And that's more than fine. We, we know what resonates with us. We know the language of worship that resonates with us. Liturgical style is only relevant to acceptability in terms of what kind of work the liturgy invites us to partake in. The word liturgy itself means the work of the people. Literally, it's the work of the people. And as we come to discover, acceptable worship is not about style, but it's about what it invites us to work on, to remember, to concentrate on and to enact in the life of the world. So that's the first thing. The second thing that I'd like to share before we unpack this text is quite specific to those who might feel, and I assume there's some of you this morning, like you're going through the motions. That in your spiritual life, in your worship life, even though you're here, you're not here, that you're, that you're going through the motions. Here's the company that you keep that for 2,000 years, Christians have struggled with this. There's been times in the individual Christian's life, in the Christian community's life, where there's a staleness, where there's a sourness, where there's stunted growth, where, where we feel like we're just going through the motions and worship in our faith. The good news is, I think this morning, if we open ourselves up to it, there's a word of encouragement for those of us who find ourselves in that particular position, just going through the motions. There's an invitation and a challenge here. And the challenge and invitation comes first and foremost uh, in this section of Hebrews, where we see that acceptable worship is birthed in gratitude. It's birthed in gratitude. Acceptable worship flows from a heart that is thankful. Did you hear what the writer said? Let us show gratitude by which or through which we may offer to God an acceptable worship. Acceptable worship starts with gratitude. It flows from the heart that has not forgotten the providence or the grace or the mercy of God in our lives. Even when we are in the valley of the shadow of death, there is still a sense of gratitude because God has brought us safe thus far and God will lead us on. It flows from a heart that recognizes God's provision and presence even in times of dryness. The great mystic Meister Eckhart once said, and I'm fond of this saying, so you've heard it before, that if you only pray this one prayer, pray it. It's enough. Two words. Thank you. G.K. Chesterton, the great British theologian and scholar and writer, once said that he's puzzled by what happens to the atheists when they feel so grateful at the end of the day they have no one to thank. Acceptable worship is birthed in thanksgiving and gratitude, recalling God's goodness and presence in our lives and in the life of the world. 
immediately before this uh, service, I know many of you have been praying for the Boussoulet family. Edwin and Nina uh, were expecting a child. Um, Sophia was born and lived just a few hours, and we just celebrated her brief life and the promises of God in the chapel at 10 o'clock. We interred her ashes in the ground. We rallied around the promises of God. And those of you who know Edwin and Nina know that they sit back there. And if you don't know Edwin, he sings really loud and on pitch. And he loves to praise God. And it struck me that in the midst of this untenable situation, that he sang along with all the saints that gathered for worship in this past hour. It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. We went out to the garden and as we were interring her ashes, they all just started singing again a cappella. It is well with my soul. Giving thanks to God that God does not leave us nor forsake us as the scripture says, but is with us even in our darkest hour. Second, acceptable worship is deeply rooted in reverence and awe. The writer says, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe. In the Greek, the term for reverence refers to how someone who is handling something knows that the thing that they're handling has great value. Just think of this illustration. Many of you remember having Sunday night dinners or uh, holiday dinners with your grandparents at their grandparents' home, and maybe they had a formal dining room, and maybe they had really formal china, and maybe the first time that you were able to help clear the dishes, uh, you did it in a sloppy and haphazard way. You stacked the china on top of each other, tried to balance as cutlery was stuck in between, and maybe your mother or your father gasped as you were sort of stumbling into the, into the kitchen to lay it down, and you just kind of threw it into the sink, and then that's when your grandmother or your parents came to you and said, this is really expensive china. You cannot treat it this way. And so the next time you were asked to clear the dinner table, you, you picked up one plate at a time with both hands and walked carefully into the kitchen to put it down. And then you brought another plate in, didn't stack it on top, but, but put it right next to the other plate that you, had, that you had brought in. You had a certain sense of value in the thing that you were holding. And that's the textbook definition of reverence that we know what it is that we're holding has tremendous value, has great worth. Uh, Clifford Schur is an American-born art collector who splits his time between London uh, and Boston. And in 2019, he was on his way to a party and he needed uh, to pick up a hostess gift. So he went to a bookstore that he was familiar with. He knew the owner-operator. It's a bookstore that, that deals in rare volumes. And as uh, Schur was checking out, uh, the owner of the store mentioned that a friend of his had come to possess uh, a sketch which they believed was an original sketch from one of Germany's most famous artists, Albrecht Dürer. Uh, Dürer was an integral thought leader, uh, creative uh, contributor to the European Renaissance movement in the 16th century. And when asked how the bookseller's friend came to possess, uh, possess rather, this sketch, he told Schur that it was purchased at a yard sale. 
It belonged to an architect whose various family members were art collectors, both here in the States and in France. And the sketch, which depicted Mary and Jesus as a toddler sitting on a grassy knoll, was passed down to the architect by his father, who passed it down from his father, who received it rather from his father, and so on and so forth. The daughters of the deceased architect who arranged for the yard sale after his death priced the piece, unframed, at $30. Despite a strong skepticism that the sketch could possibly be an original, it had been over 100 years since anyone had discovered an original Durer, the art collector, sure agreed to take a look at it. And when he did, he was absolutely floored. In an interview about that moment, this is what he said. He said, generally speaking, it's an inverse relationship between how dramatic the claim of authenticity is and how much of a letdown it turns out to be. He said, in this case, his skepticism turned into awe as he told the owner, I think this is either the greatest forgery I've ever seen or it's a true masterpiece. And following a rigorous process of authentication by some of the greatest art and Durer scholars on the planet, the sketch that was purchased at a yard sale was verified as an original valued at over $10 million. And I think the writer of Hebrews, what the writer of Hebrews is doing here is seeking to authenticate the identity of the one the people are called to encounter and called to worship. That's what the writer's doing. That this God is the genuine article. That this God is the real deal. That this God is the creator of heaven and earth. That this is the God who made you and made me and made all things. That this is the God whose sovereignty we live under, where we live and move and have our being. Know who this God is says the writer. This is the God of love made manifest in forgiveness and mercy and justice and grace. This is a God to be revered. Acceptable worship is being fully cognizant of who it is we're worshiping. Let me close with this. The third and final piece, which again seems to be incongruent on the move from the end of chapter 12 to 13. It says, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And let mutual affection continue. That's how the next chapter starts. Now this line, our God is a consuming fire, comes right from Deuteronomy 4.24. In the scriptures, the notion of God as fire is sometimes used to convey God's judgment. It's sometimes used to convey a time of personal or communal testing inaugurated by God, that we're going through the fire. In the ancient world, it also meant, uh, it also referred to rather the process of refining a precious metal. You've heard of this, refiner's fire, where gold or silver is put into the furnace and as it is heated, the impurities of that precious metal begin to rise to the top and you can clean it and make it more pure after it is heated. And in scripture, God is often referred to as a refiner's fire. That's what this consuming fire is all about. That God is refining us for something. So acceptable worship not only consists of gratitude, it not only uh, consists of knowing who it is that we're encountering worship, but it also has a mind on what happens after worship as God's refining fire forms us into the way of Jesus Christ. And that's why right on the heels of this line about consuming fire, the writer talks about let mutual affection be in you. Let it continue. Because when you worship the God who is the God of the refiner's fire, that God shapes you for mission in the world. 
that God shapes you to show hospitality to strangers, to visit those imprisoned, to be with those who are oppressed and on the margins, to honor our relationships, to honor our bodies, to keep our lives free from the love of money. In other words, acceptable worship will refine us, will change us. And so, friends, acceptable worship is is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of a heart full of gratitude. Acceptable worship is about knowing who it is, being mindful of who it is that we encounter. And acceptable worship. Acceptable worship is about what happens to us when we encounter God and the ways we are equipped for ministry in the world. May we engage this kind of worship for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the world. Amen.